Upper room discourse is a fancy way of saying a talk that Jesus had with his disciples in a room upstairs. And that's John chapters 13 through 17. And it kind of has, uh, I think Josh mentioned this a few week, just a few weeks ago uh, in Sunday afternoon, seed truth, seed truth for our position in Christ. And that's really what I want to get to. But I would like to, I would like to take a little bit of time and deal with some aspects of the Sermon on the Mount in advance of this. <clears throat> and that's what we're going to touch on tonight. Um, I don't know how much more I will, I'm not for sure how much more time I'll spend on the Sermon on the Mount in this. I spent a lot more time uh, in this particular paper. Um, but, um, uh, and Josh and Gary and Leslie might remember, I think when we were first here 30 years ago, I did Sunday, Sunday night study was the Upper Room Discourse. Okay, with that, let's go to the book of Matthew. And what I want to look at tonight, I want to uh, address before we move into the Upper Room Discourse, is that the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, do you, do you want a Bible? We've got extra Bibles in the next room. Bible really in. Bible right here. Okay, because we've got... She's even got Greek oh, right here. She's, Peggy's got a beast over here. Here's a Bible. Yeah, yeah. It's a doorstop. Bible, man. It's a lot. Yeah, I think this one's so, so pretty. Huh? It's so pretty. I know. I love the color. Does mine have? Oh, no, mine's a little different design. Yeah. Yeah. Same color difference. Yeah. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. And what, uh, well, I think we're going to, we're actually not going to go to Matthew 5. I, I apologize. just looking at my notes here, and I've just got to pay attention to what I'm doing. So, what we're going to do tonight, yeah. I, it's, just stuck in my head and I have to ask before you move on. <laughs> have you been watching The Chosen? I have not. I haven't watched any of this next season. Is there a new one out? Next Sunday is the season finale. So yeah, there's what? a new one. Of the second That's, season? Yeah, what's the last episode you saw? Oh, dang it. Um, you can't even answer then. my question then. Okay. I'm a little bit behind then. I haven't been getting notifications. I haven't, I haven't seen any of the second, the second season. season. So I believe... That in season in episode eight, it, they are going to actually he's going to present the the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, that is I know that's what he's going to do. That's 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 what they're in the preview. Yeah, yeah I'm not. Looks yeah. a little bit like he's going to walk through a curtain like a rock star. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen that. That's right, I've seen that. <laughs> okay. So I was just curious what you huh. thought about how they're. But you haven't watched, so you can't answer. No, nope, I cannot. I, I'm the one that watches. What? So. I watched season one with you. You went back and had me watch those with That's you. True. So, but season two's gone. Okay. Huh. Anyway, what we're going to look at tonight, setting the stage for moving to the upper room discourse. I want you all to be able to say that upper room discourse before we're done with this. Stuff. No, you just say the talk that Jesus had in an upstairs room. Okay, it's a real fancy way of talking about this. But what we want to establish is is that most of Jesus's earthly ministry. This is very important to understand. Most of Jesus's earthly ministry is not about you and I. Most of it is not for you and I. Most of it, ninety-five percent of it. <laughs> Is for what? Presenting the kingdom to Israel. Presenting the kingdom to Israel. And so, with that information, give you some, I like statistics. Statistics, word statistics to me are always fascinating and sometimes just make things pop out. The word king in Matthew is used 22 times. 12 times in Mark, 11 times in Luke, and 16 times in John. So it's pretty, it's a pretty dominant term in Matthew. Now, if we add to that the term kingdom, and I should have separated out the word kingdom, but I was, for some reason didn't think about that when I typed this up, and then I went back and realized I didn't type up the word kingdom separate. But the word king and kingdom in Matthew, so this includes the 22, 79 times in Matthew, 79 times in Matthew, 32 in Mark, 62 in Luke, 23 in John. So Matthew is, a, is the gospel that plays a tremendous, places a tremendous emphasis on Christ as king and the kingdom that God had promised way back in the Old Testament to Israel. So in uh, just some of these examples, and I'm going to go through some of these verses uh, with regard to Jesus Christ, but 
the first reference to king in Matthew is in 1 6 and refers to David. So it takes, Luke takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, Adam because he's presenting Jesus Christ as man. In Matthew, Matthew takes the genealogy back to, he goes back to David and then from David to Abraham. And the reason for that is Abraham was promised that kings would come from him. And David was the king that had the promise that there is going to be one that will come from you that will sit on your throne, and his kingdom will not end. That can't be Solomon, because Solomon's kingdom ended. <laughs> See? So, Herod is called the king. Look in chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Herod is called king here, but I also want to notice, <clears throat> and we all know this from the Christmas story, it says in uh, uh, verse 3, and it says, And now having uh, King Herod, having heard this, he was troubled at all Jerusalem with him. And they, uh, the uh, chief priests and scribes were assembled, uh, and he inquired of them where the Christ should be born. And I missed my verse. It's, uh, what are you looking for? Um, it's a verse that says the one born king of the Jews. Oh, it's back up in verse 2? Oh, there it is. Boy, and I've got, no, I don't have it marked there. Saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east. Thank you. Okay, I marked 3 instead of verse 2 down. Okay. So Jesus here, this is the first reference specifically in Matthew to Jesus being king of the Jews. And notice it says king of the Jews. Biden, Joseph Biden, is president of the United States. He's not the president of Mexico, he's not the president of Canada, he's not the president of the European Union, president of the United States. Jesus Christ is king of Israel, king of the Jews. wasn't the king of everybody. That's very important to understand as we're going to go through and look at some of these. <clears throat> look at chapter 13, go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and this is in these series of parables that Jesus talks about the kingdom, and he says in verse 41, And the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, they will gather out of his kingdom all things that cause offense or scandalize, and those that are practicing lawlessness. So here we have the Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus Christ, it's a reference to him that comes out of the book of Daniel, uh, in which it's talking about one that's going to reign out of the book of Daniel. And so the Jews understood this, Son of Man, but it says he's going to send out, they're going to take out of his kingdom. So the Son of Man has a kingdom. And that's important to understand here. Let's go to chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, when you get there, verse 28. <clears throat> and he is speaking here. Uh, his disciples are with him, and he says, Truly I say to you that there are some who are standing here who will absolutely not test, taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, how'd that happen? Because he hasn't come in his kingdom yet. But if you look down in verse 1 of chapter 17, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them high in a mountain. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became brilliant like light. So there's three of these disciples, three of those that were standing there, that they actually get to see what Christ is going to be like in his kingdom. And they're treated to it six days after he makes that statement. Six days afterwards, they get to see Christ transfigured uh, as he's going to be in his kingdom. Turn to chapter 25. Matthew 25. <clears throat> and verse 31. What was that again? 2531. And it says in verse 31, And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when he comes in his glory, and all of his angels with him, then, very important, it's a time word here, then he will sit upon the throne of his glory, and the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate them like from each other, like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. 
then the king, verse 35, 4 will say. See, back here in verse 31, it simply said, the son of man. But now he's, he says, and then the king. So he's referring to him as a king when he talks this. And if we go on down in this context, down to, got to find my well, verse. Well, he sits on his throne in 31. So that's right. That's a king. Exactly. And then verse 4, let's see, where's the other place that I want to say? I have 43 down, but that's not the right verse. Oh, verse 44. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see? It's still not the right verse. Man, I'm really having problems. Oh, it's verse 40. Okay, I've got it backwards here. Verse 40, it says, and then the king will say to them. So again, refers to him as the king. Truly I say to you, and as much as you've done it to one of these, my brother, at least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. But twice he's referring to himself as king in verse 40 and in verse 34. And it tells us in verse 31 where we were, that he is actually coming and sitting on his throne. He's not sitting on his throne right now. If he were sitting on his throne, the nations would have been gathered and this would all be done. But this has not transpired yet. So this is something that is yet future because he has not yet separated the sheep from the goats. He has not yet carried this out uh, at the present time. Uh, so 20, uh, let's go to chapter 27 here, Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> Twenty-seven and verse eleven. Matthew twenty-seven verse eleven. Now Jesus stood before the governor. He's talking about before Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And Jesus said, "You said it." It's not a statement of disagreeing. There are some people that have tried to come along and say, "Oh, Jesus is saying, well, that's what you say." That is not at all what he's getting at. He's actually saying, "You said it." We get that. We, we even have that expression in our language. You said it. All right. I, I'm in agreement. So he's not disagreeing with him when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? If you go down to verse 29, when Jesus is turned over um, to the uh, soldiers, it says they wove a crown of thorns. They placed it on his head, put a staff in his right hand, knelt before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And if we go on down to verse 37, and when they crucify Christ, it says in verse 37, and they placed over his head the charge that was written, <clears throat> this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. If you, whenever they executed these people on crosses, they, they always had this, this thing that was written out there so the people going by could read and they could see what this person was guilty of. Okay, and that's what this charge is. So they're, the charge is clearly, they're saying he's claimed to be uh, king of the Jews in this way. And then if we go on down here just a little bit further, in verse 40, you know, let's go to verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests mocking with the scribes and the elders. So these are all the Israel's religious leaders. Think about that. Here's all of Israel's religious <clears throat> leaders. They're mocking Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, and they're saying, he saved others. He's not able to save himself. He is a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe on him. So they're mocking him because he he's not saving himself. And yet, again, they mock him for being uh, king of Israel in this context. So Matthew places this emphasis on Jesus Christ being king. Now, I didn't, we, I didn't go, I'm primarily looking at Matthew, so I didn't go look at uh, uh, Mark and Luke. We know he's he's uh, also mentioned as king because we have the same inter in, in exchange between Jesus and Pilate recorded by John over in in uh, John eighteen or nineteen I couldn't tell you which chapter it is right now but we have the same interchange where he says you say so you are the king and Jesus actually says yeah and unto this very thing I was born I was born to be king he actually tells Pilate over there in that passage but we're focusing on Matthew but I want to I want to show you something because this is a problem that is prevalent not just in Christendom, but in Christianity, among real Christians in churches, is that most Christians today, we, um, in fact, uh, <clears throat> we've got a song that the Oris introduced us to at church that we sang, and I don't know how many times probably listened to that in the last, just in the last few days or on vacation and such, but one of the lines in there, it says, and refers to Jesus as the king, and it does that again, and we, we always sing these songs about Jesus as our king, and and Jesus being our king. And John Wesley wrote a song, says, and can it be that I should gain? And in that, in that song, he says, 
that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And the newsboys took that, and they played off that song, and they rewrote it, and they said that thou, my king, should die. And first time I heard that song, I was going, oh, yeah, this is great. They're playing a John Wesley song. Wait a minute. What did they just do? I mean, to me, they just, because John Wesley was emphasizing that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And the newsboys changed it from my God to my king. And I just, oh, I, I love that song, with the exception of that line. That line drives me nuts in that, when we sing that song, because I'm like, he's not my king. But see, that's what most Christianity thinks, that Jesus is our king, or he's the king of the church. And that's not the case. In fact, both let's go to the, both kind of have a fallacy in it. They do. Yeah. But yes, because he didn't die as God, right. but it was a person who is God that didn't lay down his life. Let's go to Acts 17. Yes, thank you, Josh. Very interesting. Acts chapter 17. <laughs> it's okay. It's question and answer night if you wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Every night. Every night. <laughs> Every night. <laughs> Acts chapter 17. That's why I kind of do a freight train teaching. If I keep going, it's harder for people to jump in and derail. Well, so here's what I'm wondering: is why does it matter? We'll address that in a moment. Okay. Acts chapter 17 and verse 7. This is uh, Paul is in the city of Thessalonica, and the Jews have gotten upset with what Paul is teaching, and they're raised up a problem. And notice we're just putting in the middle of this, these are unbelieving Jews. Okay, There have been believing Jews that have gotten saved, but these are unbelieving Jews now that are causing the trouble. In fact, I always find it interesting in verse 6. It says, and they have overturned the world. And my Christians have said, yeah, that first generation tells us right there in the book of Acts that they turned the world upside down. Actually, that claim is not is not made a root genuinely about the believers. That was an accusation that was made by, by unbelieving Jews to try to cause problems for Paul. Paul hadn't turned the city of Thessalonica upside down by their teaching. But the Jews, if they're going to get the city officials to act against Paul, what do you got to do? Well, you got to trump up charges. We'll pause. It's my sister. Oh, go, oh, yeah. go, go anywhere you want to. Answer it though. Answer it right now. Yep. Anywhere you want. Yeah, answer it right. right. Go answer that part in Hawaii, would you? <laughs> so, verse seven it says, "Whom Jason is received, and all these then are contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." Now, is that indeed what Paul was proclaiming? When we read what Paul evangelizes, is Paul presenting Jesus as king? No, he's presenting him as savior. But when uh, we saw this back in Matthew, and I kind of glossed over it, but over said, where is he that is Christ, born king of the Jews? See, for a Jew, the title Christ referred to one who was anointed, and specifically, they anticipated to be anointed to be their king. So these Jews over there in Thessalonica, when they hear Paul talking about Christ, they're going, oh, he's talking about a king. And they're not upset with about this Jesus technically being a king. That's not what they're upset about. What they're upset about is that this Jesus died and that this Jesus rose again, and they're rejecting that. So by rejecting the gospel, they're really rejecting, well, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. But this is the only statement in the whole book of Acts about Jesus ever being king. And it's actually made by some unsaved people the way they understand what Paul is saying. Okay. Now, how many times in the letters to the churches is Jesus referred to as king? Let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy, you sing it. Yeah, the song that the kids used to sing in Sunday school. And this one is not even referring to Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. Now to the king of the ages, or some of your Bibles said to the king eternal, which is I think the way the song we used to sing was with the kids. Now to the king of the ages, the one that is incorruptible, the one that's invisible, the only God, is honor and glory into the ages of the ages. Amen. 
And here it's referring to, uh, I believe, God the Father acting as king over all these ages is what he's actually referring to, but it's not specifically referring to Jesus Christ here. Now is, why do you think that? Because why do I think that? Because the expression... 16 and 16 is Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Right, but he says, now to the king of ages. Normally that is, normally when Paul does that, he's, he's making references to the Father when he, when he, makes, a, when he makes, makes a doxological statement like that. I wouldn't say exclusively, but most of the time it is. Okay, now let's go to chapter 6 here in 1 Timothy. And this is the only statement, unless we take the one in chapter 1, unless that does refer to the Son, but I, I rather confidently think that that's referring to the Father. But in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, this is the only statement in the whole uh, letters, of all the letters written to the churches in which Jesus Christ is referred to as King. And it says, um, get down to my verse here, verse 15, Let's go to verse 14. And to keep the commandments spotless, irreproachable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, that is the appearing, because it's a reference, because that's a feminine noun referring back to the word appearing, which is feminine, which in its own time will display the happy and only absolute sovereign, the king of those acting as king and the lord of those <clears throat> acting as lords to the only one having immortality. Now that's a reference to Jesus Christ because he, he had a physical body that died and now he possesses in his human nature, he has immortality. Dwelling in light that is inapproachable, whom no man is, is, has seen nor is able to see. To him is honor and power eternal. But he's, he's telling you here in the context there that this is reference to Jesus Christ acting as the happy and only sovereign, which is, by the way, very interesting, because usually when you have absolute sovereigns or absolute dictators, they're not usually particularly happy people. They're usually terribly paranoid people. Because um, I, oh, I don't know, 20-some years ago, I read a, read a partial biography of uh, Joseph Stalin, and they said one of the last people you wanted to be in Stalin's regime was anybody that was close to him or his friend, because a lot of his friends, by the thousands, died. Because he just was absolutely paranoid his whole life that everybody was going to take him out. But you know the history of the world is? You could have five or six brothers and they could grow up being your best friends. But you hit the throne and they all want to cut your throat. You know, you've got that in the Bible. You or go the mother. Or the mother. Yeah, the mother. Remember, we've got a, a queen in the Old Testament. Or could that, be your wife. Yeah. I was watching a thing about, a historical thing about Japan. And they were trying to, this guy was trying to unify Japan. And uh, they had intermarried. One kingdom had married his the enemy kingdom had married the daughter to this other kingdom, and she didn't like the guy and was betraying him to the other kingdom. And it's like you got enemies all around you. <laughs> Sounds like uh, the Old Testament Judge Samson. Yes. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Nothing true. new. Okay. Okay. Stop. But this king is different than the king of the Jews. It's king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus referred to that again in another passage. I can't, it will probably come Well, in. we're going to go to Revelation chapter 1. There's another one, though. So was there a question that we're asking He's now? going to be tapping his foot until his enemies are turned over to him, and then he will be acknowledged by everyone as king of kings. Is that Philippians 2? Where's that at? Is it Philippians? No, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I believe 1 Corinthians 15 is where we want to go. <laughs> that would be... We don't have the king of kings thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, we, the thing is, is we don't have any other references to king. That's the whole thing. There are no other references to king in the epistles, period. Okay. <laughs> Unless you have references to submitting to an earthly king. I'm going to take your word for it. Okay. But I'm going to check my concordance. You do that. I just, I just went back over, I just went back over these again today, so check me. Hey, hey, I wrote some verses down wrong here when I typed stuff up. Yes, Timothy 1, 6, verse 17. Is it in Obadiah 14? Yes. <laughs> 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 
Um, okay, so it doesn't use the word king. It says no. he must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. Right. So right. the reign is yeah. he reigns, but he can't. Right. And the last enemy, he says, is actually yeah. abolishing death. Yeah, so he's going to do this until there is no and more he death. And hands <laughs> over the kingdom to the God and Father. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, the last reference that we're going to look at that has, that has any context for the church is Revelation chapter 1. And the reason it's context for the church because this is John is writing and he's actually listening to this. <clears throat> and if we go to verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace is to you and peace from the one being, the one who was, the one who's coming, reference to the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And, and by the way, if you just keep reading, you get to chapter 4, you find that because you have the Father on the throne, then you have the Spirit before the throne, and then you have Christ as the, as the Lamb. In there, And then verse 15, and from Jesus Christ, the witness, the faithful one, the firstborn out from among the dead, the ruler or the one ruling the kings of the earth. So there is a place in which he has, he's going to have a role ruling with reference to the kings of the earth. Uh, and if we can either take that, that that's something he's doing right now, that's the way some people would understand this, or whether this is something that he's going to ultimately work out in the future. I mean, said all that. I mean, said all that. Now we're going to come back and we're going to try to answer this question. What difference does it make? Number one, the first difference is the Bible does not say that he's sitting on his throne reigning right now. So whenever we claim that he's sitting on his throne reigning right now, we're actually saying something that the Bible doesn't say. And let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. This is... <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1. Notice where he said, you remember Matthew 25, 31? It says, the Son of Man will come in his glory, and then, then he will sit on his throne. Notice what it says here in Hebrews chapter 1. It's talking about the uh, God speaking to us uh, through a son, uh, and then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> in, this is verse 3, who being the, the very radiance of, of his glory, the exact character of his essence, holding up all things by the word of his power, and having made a cleansing for sin, he sat down in the right hand of the majesty in the heights. See, the son's not sitting on his throne right now. When Paul writes this in Hebrews, he says, right now the son is sitting down on the father's throne with the father. Let's go over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and go to the very end of chapter 3 to verse 21. This is a promise that's made to you and I, by the way, as overcomers. So Revelation, because remember an overcomer, John tells us an overcomer is one that believes. Very simple. Verse 21, it says, and the one overcoming, or the victor, I will give to sit with me in my throne, as I also was victorious and sat with my father in his throne. So the son is promising here that when he does come and he does sit on his throne, he's going to grant all of us who are believers in Christ to sit with him in his throne. Which sounds to us as kind of a bizarre thing. I don't know how he's going to work that. Nice big laugh. I mean. Hey, this is this is the illustration I've used just from just from our very concrete world. If you ever go to Mary Hill Museum down there, you see there is the Queen uh, Queen Maria of Romania, and she her throne her throne is there. She gave it to Sam Hill, and it's a five seat throne. Her seat sits in the center, and she's kind of like sits in a little booth, and then there's two seats on either side, and they're all part of one throne. So she could grant for other people to sit with her on a throne at a time. Have you seen it? No. Yeah. I have, however, seen the cartoon version of Robin Hood, and I believe there is something similar. Oh. I'm glad that Disney was accurate. <laughs> Sometimes they get it right. That's helpful. So, so, the, so the first point in all of this is, 
is what just doesn't matter. What difference does it matter? Well, the first difference is, is number one, Christ is not presently sitting on his throne. Paul writing Hebrews and Jesus himself speaking in Revelation 3 is saying that in Revelation's being written about 90 to 95 AD, so we're almost at the end of the New Testament, the the era that the New Testament's being written, and Jesus is saying, I'm I'm sitting on the Father's throne. I'm going to grant those of you that are victors, those of you that are believers, I'm going to grant you to sit with me on my throne. That means every last believer in Jesus Christ is going to be granted the privilege to sit with his with Christ in his throne. And I don't know if that means we get to come through and sit with him four at a time or ten at a time or twenty-four at a time. Because you got a picture hours. of twenty-four elders. I don't know how all that plays out. He hasn't he hasn't told me how that works. I really don't know. But he says it's going to happen. In some way, we're all going to be granted that privilege to sit within his throne. And we're not sitting on that throne now. And believers that ascend to heaven aren't sitting on that throne. Because he's not on that throne yet. He's sitting on the Father's throne with the Father. And we saw that two passages that state that. So, number one, that's the first reason. Number two, if he were reigning at the present time, then he would be reigning in righteousness and you would... Um, let's go back over there to Matthew chapter 13. This would be going on. <clears throat> we already read this verse a little bit ago, but this would be happening. <clears throat> um, Matthew chapter 13, and uh, let's go to verse 40. I want to read verse 40 because I just want to be, I, I want us all to see what he's talking about here. Verse 40, it says, Therefore, just as the weeds are, were gathered and were thrown into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And that's the way a lot of your Bibles say, but it doesn't actually say end of the age. It's soon tell us, and soon tell us is consummation. It's the age coming to its point that it's supposed to come to. And the point that it was supposed to come to was his kingdom. So he says, when that, this, so in other words, he's saying, this is what it's going to be like in the kingdom. Okay. So what he's doing, he's telling a mystery about the kingdom. And the mystery is that the son of man went out and sowed the message of the kingdom, sowed the sons of the kingdom in there. And then Satan comes along and oversows his sons. And the, and the servants are saying, well, wait a second, shouldn't we go out and tear, get rid of those weeds? <laughs> and he goes, no, because then you'll tear up the good ones with them. So he says, let them grow. But when we come into the kingdom, that's not going to be tolerated. He is going to send the angels out. And they are going to take out from among the believers the tares. But what he's telling you is right now, one of the things that really throws the kingdom off. And he had to explain this to his disciples. That's why this is a parable to help the disciples figure out, why is it that we've got all these, why do we get this mix of unbelievers hanging out in the midst of these believers? We don't get this. And he goes, well, this is why. Because Satan's sowing those unbelievers in there. And he's putting them right in there among the believers, and it creates a problem. But he says in verse 41, So then the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. So this is what would be happening right now. If Christ were reigning and his kingdom was in place, they would be gathering out of his kingdom all things that cause offense, and all those who are practicing lawlessness, and they will throw them into a furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And the righteous ones would be shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father, and the one having ears let him hear. But the point that he's getting at here is you'd be getting you'd be getting these nasty believers just being plucked out all over the place. And that's not happening today. In fact, much to our frustration, we look around and we sometimes see unrighteousness far more prevalent than we see righteousness right now. And that's because. Christ is not sitting on his throne and he's not reigning, and so he's not commanding these things to be going on at the present time. So if your town motto is Jesus is Lord of Royal City, that doesn't make it true. That's right. You could say that all day long, but it doesn't change that fact. Yeah. I say all kinds of things. It doesn't make it true. Rich Schaefer always used to say, living in Texas for many years as a kid and whatnot, you'd have cities that had that. Not today. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. it will be true someday, but not today. Yeah, we noticed that out there in Pennsylvania, and our friend Gary pointed that out. I mean, we thought that when we went to Texas. I mean, growing up in Iowa and out here, you know, you have churches, 
but we went to Texas to see her sister the first time. And I told, I said, you could put your body any place in town. And if you had a good arm, you could pick up a stone and throw and You probably had a chance of hitting a church, either a Baptist church or a church of Christ. They're just everywhere in those two towns. It's crazy how many of them are. Well, then you go out there to Pennsylvania and it's kind of like, and you guys have been to Pennsylvania. It's like, it's crazy how many churches there are. You, everywhere you turn around, there's sometimes there's like, Gary said, there's one block where you go in a coffee shop on one corner and there's a church on the other three corners opposite that. The coffee shop there, all there. So they're just, they are really surprising how prevalent churches are. And some of them got it right, some of them don't. It kind of depends on the individual church. So the point is that today Christ is not king. One of my professors used to say, don't blame this mess on my Savior. <laughs> okay. Um, he's not. We can anticipate that one day he will be king. Second, second thing with this. Well, I'm just thinking, like, where does this teaching come from, and why is it so prevalent if Scripture is plain? Can I answer? Yes. I do. I just, <laughs> okay. Please. Because most people don't distinguish between Jesus' different messages. He had a message to about the, earth, the millennial kingdom, which is mainly the Gospels. But then you get into the New Testament that he revealed through Paul, and you have all this messages about the different people that was going to get different promises. Well, most of the people, most Christians, and whether some of them are unbelievers and some of them are believers, they're going back to either the Old Testament or the New Testament to determine how they live today. So it completely throws them off on how they live their whole Christian life today. Because they're looking at the Old Testament for how to behave yeah mm -hmm. so like uh if you go to a catholic church what's their whole thing based on it's based on uh the moral the moral aspects of <laughs> wait the, what would you say guilt and shame but they to establish <laughs> morality guilt and shame <laughs> catholicism and a lot of christian churches go back to the old testament and they don't practice the old testament but they take the moral they divide it into moral and the other and they try to establish morality based on the ten commandments right right you go to Christian churches that say, no, we don't live by the law, but they go to the, the, the Gospels, and which are looking forward to the kingdom law. And there's three standards of righteousness in the Bible, or three standards of how you live. The, new, the Gospels teach what Christ has said. This is how they're going to live in my thousand-year reign. That's how most Christians today are trying to live. What do, well, if it's in the red, that's the most important thing. Because right. Jesus said You hear people say that <laughs> right, all yes. the right. time. Yes. And what they don't realize is Jesus, that was rejected. That was never put into practice when he was here. It was something it he was, was presenting. It was for the Jews, first of all. It was for the Jews. And, and they, rejected they rejected it. it. And then the night before his death, he presented something new. His ongoing away. I forgot what you called it already. Upper room. Upper room. The, the talking, the upstairs room. The talk in the upstairs room. So that's that's, and so the whole New Testament is about our relationship with Him, not as King, because He's not ruling. And in fact, the fact that He's not ruling, we should be thankful for, because He's waiting for that inheritance from the Father, and He's putting it off, because that's what the Old Testament anticipated. It anticipated Christ asking the Father for His inheritance that He could break the nations with a rod and destroy them. Right. That's what Psalms 2 is about. And that's what you would expect the next thing to be if it wasn't for John 13 through 17. It's uh, something com completely different, and he changes directions, and he says he's waiting for that. He's not, he's not asking for it. He's not asking for it because he's dedicated to the church. He says, I'm not going to be king yet. I'm not going to be, not yet. I don't have every New Testament believer yet. Every elect one has to be part of the church before he will ask for it. And what you said about the rod, that also is over there in those promises. Not only are they going to promise to sit on the throne, but he also says over there, he says, and he says, and I will give him a rod, a rod of iron, and he will smash them, smash the nations like, like a potter does. He says, just as I receive, I receive. So he also receives that, has, will receive that authority. Yeah. It's also a lack of recognizing that Israel and the church are Josh said that, but there are so many people that want to either 
completely obliterate God's promises to Israel. And just, it's now the church. They want to keep Israel's promises as going to the church. Mm -hmm. But if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, then why does he have to keep them to us? It makes him just another human being that lies. Mm -hmm. And so that is a, you know, I mean, one time we went to a Orthodox, Russian Orthodox church, and I was really struck with even more than the Catholic Church of their services being the Old Testament as far as the part wall of partition and you know they had a little building for like it was a holy of holies and they had the incense going and so they've incorporated all that Old Testament stuff that was Israel's, which is a shadow of the true in heaven. And Jesus was the one that was the reality. And it's just all jumbled up because they take the verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And they don't realize that God is always the same in essence, but he can do things differently. He doesn't do everything exactly the same, even though his character is always the same. And it just jumbles it all up. I don't know if that was helpful, but that was, my, that was how I'd answer that. No, I would. Yeah. I just, I, Paul, Paul refers to Christ as our Lord and our head. As our Lord, he's the one that's in charge of the church. Not in charge of the world, he's in charge of the church. And I really appreciate that. He's dedicated himself to the church, as, as Paul says. So he's dedicated himself to the work of the church right now. But uh, So he's Lord in the sense that he's in charge, but head. And I really appreciate that. Jim did that study on headship a couple years ago. And that pointing out that headship and lordship are two different things. Headship is his role of caring for the church. I do think that... The Bible teaches that even though he is the Lord and he is the head of the church and he is Israel's king, right. it also has another sphere. And Jim covered this a few weeks ago that, you know, God, in the verses in the Old Testament, God is the king over all the earth. So there's this overall, he is the king of kings and Jesus will he is the king of kings. And so even though there is that realm, so I don't think it's totally wrong. I mean, he's, he is above being Israel's king. He, you know, he is God. And so in that realm, he is, king. he is a ruler. Right. And, but it's different what, People. Different realms of authority, different kingdoms. Yeah, that, that, different. Yeah. That's a whole other statement. That kingship, yeah, that kingship <laughs> is very different because he's even because he says over there in Daniel four, he's even put in over the kingdoms of men, even the worst of men, Nebuchadnezzar being one of them, the arrogant king that God humbled. But then his grandson also would have fallen in that same thing, and his grandson, grandson Belshazzar, ends up being so bad that God kills him, takes him out. Well, let's the Medes take him out, but. So let's wait. Good. That is I'm ruminating. Okay. So uh, just to kind of circle a little bit, the idea that he's dedicated to us. If he had asked for his inheritance of the nations when he rose on high, because that's what the Old Testament prophesied he would do, then any New Testament believer that wasn't put into the body of Christ yet would not be able to rule with him in the kingdom. It would invalidate that. So by having a parenthesis that wasn't prophesied about, that's the church, and now he has new promises to us, those have to be completed before he can carry out the next. So if you try to say he's king today over the church, you're actually saying a very... Uh, if you went to a court of law, they would say... You just invalidated your case, and you are out. Throwing it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it was interesting also, because he does say the nations are an inheritance out of Psalm 2. But there's but when you go and come to the book of Ephesians, 
he points out, God, Paul points out there, we, we today are his inheritance. So he's got a whole other inheritance, and that's us. And every last believer has to be there. That's part of the point neck text. We all have to be there, and we all have to be secure. Christ's inheritance is only partial. He's going to get every last one of us that was promised to him. But some people will not, I don't want to say a challenge, they will not question what they're hearing. They won't study it out for themselves. Like I have so, so this much. This is where it all comes back to is that people don't take the time. Right. It's easier. It's easier it's just to say, well, what he's saying, well, he's, this is him, this is me. You know, so he's got to have it right. Or this is There's him, this is me. I better not question. Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 really rhymes good. <laughs> it does. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. All those songs that I substitute Lord for, for King, it kind of goes... Kind of, yeah. it sounds it sounds good in terms of truth, but in terms of rhythm, it's kind of yeah. 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 It's not. Yeah. It's hard to find good words to. So people will not question: Is that really what the Bible says? Or I better not question him, or I'm too stupid to question that person. And it's just been centuries of bad teaching. So when you do get people who dig it right. They, they sound wrong. They sound wrong, and they get they get um, yeah. crucified <laughs> sometimes. They're, they're also in the book in the Gospels. Jesus tells his disciples to only go to the lost sheep. Okay, that's where we're go. heading next. So let's go look at those. Let's go look at the lost. Let's look at these. Let's go to Matthew ten. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This was, I thought Josh was going to move this direction here for a second, but as long as we're going that way. Matthew, Steve, this is one of Steve's favorite passages. It was still oh. fanning, so I, really? Right. Oh yeah, he, he, will, still a fan he went over this at our conference. When he, when he does uh, con contrast between old and new, he will hit this for sure. Yeah. yeah. Who are you talking about? Steve Adams. <clears throat> Jen's dad. Steve Adams. Okay, so Matthew chapter ten, verse five. These twelve just got done naming the twelve disciples. These twelve Jesus sent out, commanding them, saying. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and into the city of the Samaritans do not enter. Go instead to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and while going preach, saying, The kingdom from the heavens is near. Number one, is that our, is that our marching orders today? No, because no, we're all Gentiles here. We're not Jews. Okay, I don't think any of us are Samaritan descent, but we're all Gentile descent. And so somebody came to us and brought the gospel to us. And yet, if we were obeying that, we would not be doing this. Because we're under Matthew 28. Because <laughs> we're under Matthew 28. He changes the orders. He says, now go to all nations. Okay? Because things change. Do. What? Which they wouldn't Which do. they didn't do. Yeah, yeah. He had to force them out of Jerusalem with persecution because they wouldn't obey. And then he says, uh, so again, verse 6 again, but go instead to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Secondly, verse 7, is this what we proclaim? Is this, do we go out saying the kingdom from the heavens is near? Is that what you tell people? Nope. No, you tell them who Jesus Christ is and what he did. We tell them about his death, burial, and resurrection. We don't. The rapture could happen at any moment. Believe quick. And then in seven years, things are going to go get really bad. <laughs> yeah, we don't do any of that. We don't do any of that. clothes look too nice for you to be screaming like that. <laughs> we just tell we just tell people about who Christ is and what he did. Then notice in verse 8, I even think about this. When you're going, this is also the instruction the disciples were to do. Healing, healing those that are sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely if you receive, freely give. But Tim, there's that training center in Waitsburg. <laughs> yes, there's a training center there's, apostolic a, there's an apostolic training center. It says spreading the a a apostolicity or whatever it is throughout okay, the... But this is not an uncommon thing. I, I know. Well. In fact, I just, I didn't know, I don't know if you guys, you guys, do you guys know what grave soaking is? What? Grave soaking? No. Grave? Like grave, like a grave that you bury a person in. Okay. Grave so okay, well just wait. This is what it is. That's how they see if they can vote. There is a there is a there is a pastor, I don't know how else, what else to refer to him. His name is Bill Johnson. He's in California Shasta. You you know who Bill Johnson oh, yeah. is. My yeah. sister was Bethel. 
Yeah, yeah. and Bill Johnson actually teaches the people that there are great people that have gone before us, and we can go out, and we can actually lay on their graves and soak up some of their anointing and the spirit that is left behind for for powerful things like this. They also teach healing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they teach all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. You can be a god. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. I've watched a couple of... some really pretty songs. <laughs> I, I've watched a couple of things Mike Winger's done on there because people had asked questions on it. But anyway, one of their one of their worship band people's three year old child died two years ago, and they prayed for weeks that the child would raise from the dead. Oh my they gathered um, the church to pray. They put it out on social media for the world to pray. Oh wow. Is that Hillsong and that's associated with them? No. I don't no, that's a, no, that's oh, a different answer. Hillsong is Bethel associated is, with Hillsong. Bethel so is what, what happened? Hillsong Church. What happened, oh. Robin? Did she raise? <laughs> she oh. did, what she did not. <laughs> oh. No. That must have been so discouraging. Yeah, and I don't know what type of fallout there was. I, the truth is, it's a, that it's a, I heard did it a lot of people give billion money? dollar church. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. oh church. yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Did a lot of people give donations? I don't know. Because uh, I've, I've listened to I maybe 10 hours of Bill Johnson. That's about all I can oh. handle. So I have listened to it. But so I, it's not like I've just listened to what other people have said. I've listened to some of it. So yeah. yeah. This anyway. would fall in the realm of warning against. What? Yeah, I'm warning against. Yes, I, I, I. But but the thing is, is if, if we were doing this, we should be obeying what Jesus said. If these marching orders are still valid, if what Jesus' earthly ministry is valid yes. for us, we should be practicing this. And and they would be right, and they should be healing. But the thing is, their healing is not the kind of healing Jesus is doing. I mean, they had people all day long that are coming and getting healed of legitimate illnesses, left and right. And into the night, right oh, yeah. before... Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus healed people all mm -hmm. night long. Right, yeah. That's why he went away right. and the people all followed him because yeah. they wanted to get healed. Yeah. It's really... Um, It'd be great if he was today... I mean, I'm, I'm just... I'm not really saying this, but if he lived today and he could heal through the internet and then people... And then BAM! The stupidity <laughs> that is healed the internet. Heal over FaceTime. <laughs> So, yeah, these people say I should heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, but they sure don't do the next part. Oh, yeah. The, don't, well, means. no, no, no. you got to be careful. I think they do. You don't provide gold for yourself because you expect the people where you go that are supposed to provide Acquire no gold. Yeah, yeah. So they're, yeah. The, they're the ones, yeah, that are supposed to do that. Yeah. Let's go over to chapter 15. Let's go over to chapter 15 here. Go down to verse 23 when you get there. What? Where? 15? 15. 15 23. Let's go to, to verse 21, actually. Just the, and it says, And Jesus, going out from there, withdrew into the districts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, that there was a woman, a Canaanite, there from the borders. And having come out, she cried out, saying, Have mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. Uh, my daughter is uh, severely treated by a demon. He didn't answer a word. And here's this woman talking. She doesn't even respond to her in this. He'd been casting out demons on lots of people. This woman comes, and his disciples approached, and they were asking him, saying, send her away. She's crying out behind us. So she's following behind him as they're walking, and she keeps asking. But he answered and says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Look at there. I mean, Jesus won't even heal, won't even heal this woman's daughter and cast out a demon. But she, having come worshipped, was saying, Lord, Help me. And he answered and says, it is not good. Now notice this. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He has called this woman a dog. Because that's the way the German, the Germans, the Jews. Wow. What a wow. Yeah. German and Jews. But that's the way the Jews looked at the Gentiles. And they did that because they looked at dogs. If you've ever owned a dog, they looked at dogs as kind of indiscriminatory creatures. Peg and I were just yesterday driving through Walla Walla and there's a guy walking his dog and his dog's laying and just rolling all over the ground. And all I can think of is something smelled there because it's the only time I see dogs roll like that. And the guy's letting his dog do that. They're indiscriminatory creatures. They're just 
And that's the way that's the way the Jews looked at the Gentiles and the Gentile behavior is that you guys have no you guys don't discriminate. You Gentile and you and I don't appreciate that today. We look back and we just kind of think, oh, they just kind of acted like the Canadians or the Mexicans or maybe the Jap you know, we don't really realize how horrible behavior a lot of these cultures around the Jews were. I mean, they practiced child sacrifice throughout the Old Testament, which just boggles my mind. But well, I guess we kind of do that even here where we live, don't we? So he goes on from there, and uh, he says, it's not good then to throw that. And then she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table of their master. And then Jesus says, woman, your faith is great. In other words, she is so persistent in this that even though she is not one that Jesus was sent to deal with, He's going to say, let come for you what you desire, and her daughter is healed from that hour. But again, this is important because it's not just Jesus giving marching orders to disciples. He's practicing what he preaches. He's not dealing with Gentiles. Except he's, God is a God of exception. And he is, we yes. In fact, because she was persistent and he healed her. <laughs> well, is this not also like... Her recognizing who he is. Oh, she is. Yeah. She's doing a better job recognizing who he is. Than See, seriously, I mean, he's all these Jews around him, and here's this Gentile. They're not believing, but she is. He's pointing out, look. And we have that also in Matthew 8. You call 8. this a dog, but look. We have that in Matthew 8 right after the Sermon on the Mount. I yeah. think I might be wrong, but I think the first person that he helps heal is a servant or a son of a centurion, centurion. a Roman military official. Just say the word. A, and he says, I haven't found such, such great faith in all of Israel. Yeah. And he's referring to his disciples in that context, yeah. too. Even they hadn't shown that great disciple. Just as, a, as an aside on the Gentile issue, if you ever study the book of Luke, Luke singles out a lot more interaction that Jesus has with Gentiles yeah. in situations. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is, is because Luke was a Gentile, and so he looks at the fact that even though Jesus wasn't sent to the Gentiles, there were Gentiles that Jesus did interact with, like this woman, because they were persistent. They heard what he said, and they responded better than most of the nation of Israel well, did. And just like in the Old Testament, the uh, woman at Jericho, Rahab, Ruth and Moabites, mm -hmm. there was, you know, and, they're even included in that. Oh, and Judah's, Judah's daughter, Tamar. Tamar. There are all three of those are Gentile women, and they're all in the genealogy of Jesus. Mm -hmm. All three of those women. They are part of his ancestry. Yeah. Romans 15. Romans 15. We'll grab these next two verses and then we'll stop. We won't touch on the Sermon on the Mount tonight. We'll come back and look at those next week. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're interested as an assignment, to read through the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourselves these questions. Just ask this question. Is that really the way it is for me? Just ask. Is that really the way it is for me when you read these statements that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount? And there's some statements in the Sermon on the Mount that I think a lot of Christians just kind of gloss over. Because <laughs> if they really read them for what they said, they go... <laughs> anyway, that we'll save that for next week. I don't know if they go, but that's what I did. <laughs> Romans 15 and verse 8. It says, For I say, Christ then has become a servant, has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm or make firm the promises of the fathers. So notice that? But then he says, and the Gentiles then will glorify God for his mercy. In other words, the Gentiles are kind of like the dogs that are eating the crumbs up under the floor. Under the table. Under the table. Under the floor, yeah. I said under the floor. But it says in verse 8, Jesus came as a servant. Paul recognizes that. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of this for the circumcision that's okay that's what was that's what his job was and if we go over to galatians chapter 4 galatians chapter 4 in verse 4 verse 4 says and when the fullness of time came God sent forth his son, having come to be from a woman, having come to be under law. 
so that he might redeem out from law those that were under law, or redeem out from the law. In order that those under law he might redeem out. I just got to read it right. In order that they, we might receive placement as sons. But he says he was under the law to redeem those that were under the law. Redeem them out. Get them out from under the law so that they could get something else. And we'll look at one last passage that I well, didn't write. Well, and that's the passage that talks about, that tells that Jesus himself was a Jew under law. So if we follow Jesus today, we can't actually do that because we can't follow the law the way Jesus did. That's true, too. There's no temple. Hmm? There's no temple. That's well, right. Yeah, and that's so, right. so when, yeah, the whole follow Jesus yeah. thing was... So let's go to Second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse... This is... Uh, he says in verse 2, he says, I am zealous for you with the zeal from God, for I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest as the serpent has completely deceived Eve by his cunningness, that the conclusions of your mind should be led astray from the simplicity, and some of your Bibles will also have purity there, but from the simplicity that is directed into Christ. That simplicity literally means it's not, you don't have, you're not presenting a message and braiding it in with some ulterior motives. It's literally this idea, which that what these guys are doing. And then he makes a statement. For indeed, if there's coming that preaches, and we have two different words for another in this verse. If, a, if indeed one comes preaching another Jesus that is similar. Notice he doesn't say preaching Jesus. He says another similar Jesus. Notice what Paul says, that we didn't preach. Paul says, we didn't preach this Jesus. Or, now he says, or you receive a different spirit. That word is now clearly different, which you did not receive. Or a different gospel, which you did not welcome. So he says, these people come and there's going to be three things they're going to do. They're going to present a different spirit. And I think that, I've come to the conclusion, I think that that has to do with revelation. That's the way they got revelation, is that the Spirit would give them. And so, sometimes they got revelation from the Spirit, but it wasn't called the Holy Spirit. But secondly, we also have an issue here, that there's a different gospel. It's not really a gospel. Kind of like Paul says over in Galatians 1. It's a different gospel. It's a gospel, but it's not, it's not a gospel at all. It's not good news. But here's the part that I wanted to focus on, the first part. They come and they preach a similar Jesus. They don't come along and just present, it's like Mormons. They don't come and present it all together completely different Jesus. They take a Jesus of the Bible that looks a lot like our Jesus until you nail him to the wall and say, wait a second, is he eternally God? Well. They'll say yes. They'll say yes because they said, because we are eternally, and, they'll say, and you know, you're like, so, anyway, but. They come along and they present this. But these were false apostles. Paul tells you that down in the context. He says these are false apostles. He says they're minister, there are false apostles and they're ministers of Satan. He tells you, right, just go down in verse 13. Tells you what these guys are that are doing this. But they come along and they present, they announce a different Jesus or a similar Jesus, but Paul says, but we never presented him. And I'm convinced when he says Jesus and not Christ, because these people are coming and they're going back and they're looking at the earthly ministry of Christ and that's they're picking out these stories. The stories from the earthly ministry of Christ are great stories. People can relate to them, especially... Let me give you an example from a, from a preacher that our, our friend Gary was telling us about. It's not about Jesus, but he gave us one about Jesus and I can't remember what it was, but he was telling about Jonah. Jonah got... What's the big thing that happened to Jonah? He got swallowed by a fish. And he said, he says, we all need to get swallowed by fish because the people wouldn't listen to him until he got swallowed by a fish because when he gets swallowed by a fish, he comes out and now he stinks. And everybody appreciates somebody that stinks because that means you're a sinner just like them. That's not at all what that's all about. That is, I'm, I read that and I'm like, did this guy even read the book of Jonah? That is not at all what that story is about. Jonah doesn't go to, he doesn't want to win those people. He's only obeying God. He wants God to destroy Nineveh. Anyway, so... But that's what they do. And Gary was telling us about a couple of things that they list. He listened to some of these guys 
uh, preaching about Jesus the same way, where they just they they take stories from the life of Jesus. And he's like, did you even read those stories, or did you read them like in your little kid's storybook of Jesus? You know those things where somebody else kind of retells the story and then you, yeah. yeah. But but the point being is here is that Paul's telling you this is showing showing you right here in the first century. You had people coming into a real church, a church that Paul had started in Corinth. And they were talking about a Jesus that Paul says, I never talked to you about. And you guys have been listening to them. And basically, he's kind of getting after the, kind of chiding these Corinthians for listening to these teachers teach about this other Jesus. Anyway, we'll come back. I just, I'm thinking about that because what we're looking at here with understanding something about the earthly ministry of Christ it is something you you should understand the earthly ministry. You should read these things. And Archer, we've taught through all the way through Matthew. We've taught all the way through John. We've taught all the way through Luke. So we've taught through these things verse by verse. It took us what two years to go through Luke. It's a big book. It's good, but you go through there and you find out it's not really for us. But does that mean it? In, does that make it in? Does that make it? lack of value simply because I can't take it home and apply it to my life tomorrow when I have to go to work. No, it has tremendous value because it makes me appreciate what God was doing. He was honoring, as Leslie was reminding us, honoring his promises to Israel. And if he honors his promises to Israel, that encourages me that he's going to honor his promises to us. I think that that's very important for us to understand. It also well, shows us a lot about how he suffered as a human being. Yes, yeah. So we'll come back next week, and we're gonna we're gonna look at some specific statements out of the Sermon on the Mount, and kind of touch on some things in there. Um, I just would like to point out. Oh yes, please. That um, the instructions that are given uh, to going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew ten, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus changes those instructions to the disciples. In Luke 22, and you know, he tells it, it's um, he, he tells them even to take a weapon, then you know, and he had told them before to go without a money belt. Now he tells them to take a money belt, right? So, I mean, God does change the way he does things. Yeah. That's Luke twenty two thirty five and following. He changes those instructions he gave to the disciples, and that's all kind of setting up for um, the change of marching orders with uh, Matthew twenty eight. Now go to all nations. So, okay, mark where we end in here. But the reason, and I'm just going to say, the reason we're doing this is because before I want to look at this, because what I really want to get to is looking at the upper room discourse. But if we think the upper room discourse is just the same thing Jesus has been teaching all through his earthly ministry, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be, we're not going to appreciate the uniqueness of what's going on in the upper room discourse. And that's part of the goal of this, is we want to appreciate how unique that talk that he had with those disciples was. It was very it was a very unique talk that he had with them. So, and I've told a couple of guys over the years that sometimes when you're introducing this idea of making distinctions and trying to teach some Christian life truth and some people are reluctant to listen to anything other than Jesus, upper room is a good way to kind of start that because Jesus is talking and, and you can introduce some of those things there. So, Okay, I'm going to end this.